Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am Kevin Kaufman, your host of the Kevin and Fred Next Level Agents podcast, the real estate podcast that brings you short business tips and tricks, as well as in-depth interviews with some of our industry's leading minds. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Leo, what's going on, man? How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Kevin. How are you? Doing good, man. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. I really appreciate your time, dude. Oh, my pleasure. Well, hey, so I wanted to just bring you on the podcast for multitude, multitudes of reasons. Uh, number one, have known about you for years, long before we actually ever met, but our paths kind of crossed at Keller Williams way back in the day. Uh, lots of mutual friends. And then all of a sudden, you made a big shift in the last couple of years that really caught my attention and really the attention of quite a few people in the industry uh, in, with your company, Remind. And so I want to be able to talk about that today. But truthfully, and I, and I know you talk about that a lot. Truthfully, what I want to do is I want to learn some of your lessons, uh, some of the lessons from you that you learned growing your real estate business. Because some people who may be newer into the real estate business may not realize the massive sales company that you, you started years ago. And so I'd like to kind of talk about that and your lessons learned as a realtor and stuff like that. And then how that translates into business today for you. Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. We can talk about anything you want. Awesome. So let's just start back in the beginning, man. Like tell me about getting licensed. Like number one, what brought you into real estate and uh, t tell me about the beginning of your career. Yeah, sure. So it's uh, different than most people in the sense that I, I got licensed at 19 years old, which you know, the average realtor in this country is 56 years old. So that, that by itself made me quite different. But um, my story starts back during the first big economic bubble I lived through, which was not a real estate bubble. It was a tech bubble. I actually went to college to learn how to make uh, web, uh, websites, which is ironic because I ended up in tech anyway, after all. But um, yet while I was in high school, I was being recruited um, by companies that don't exist anymore, like WorldCom and AOL. But they were saying, if I went to college, got a degree, uh, they were all based in the D.C. metro area. And I attended college. My f uh, freshman year was 2000. So I probably picked the worst year in the world to get into tech. And it was actually a very uh, forthtelling experience because it, it showed me how quickly stuff can change around you. And it doesn't matter how secure you think you are. But uh, job offers that would have been 150000 around 2000 became 35,000 or disappeared altogether because the money just dried up over overnight what it felt like. But I actually read a book, which most people in real estate are familiar with, which is Rich Dad Poor Dad. Yeah. And it was really the catalyst that showed me leverage. So it's, it's interesting. I took a business class in college where I uh, specced out building a graphic design company. And back then it was about $400,000 in servers and computer hardware. Uh, now, anyone with a laptop can do that, right? There's cloud computing, there's all stuff. So the barrier of entry is something I've been obsessed with in businesses. Real estate is one of those unique businesses where the barrier of entry is what, 400 bucks to get licensed in most states, plus maybe 40 to 60 hours of classes, which makes life, um, makes it easy if you choose to get into the business. But I, I think that's kind of the fallacy of the space, right? It's like it's, it's built at this hey, easy, flexible, make a whole bunch of money. But uh, as you and I know, the most successful realtors in, in, in the business aren't flexible or easy or nonchalant about it. They're, you know, pretty diligent uh, ladies and gentlemen who wake up at the crack of dawn and do the same thing over and over again with relentless obsession. So 
Yeah. Um, the only difference is in this industry, no one cares if you fail. So it's you, if you choose this path, you have to have a ton of discipline or find people to hold you accountable. So um, I started in college. I got licensed. Um, long story short, I uh, got in an argument with my landlord when I was 19 years old and had to find somewhere to rent. I was uh, working for a real estate uh, franchisee of Keller Williams. I passed my test. Um, long story, actually, I had asked him to intern him before. He said no. Uh, he referred me to a guy in Colorado who uh, I met and for 10 grand, he said he could teach me everything I want to know about real estate, which might as well have been $100,000 because I didn't have the money. But I actually sold my car and wired the stranger all my money. Whoa. Hold yeah, on a yeah. second. Hold on. Back, like, time out, dude. You I was about to skip that part of the story, but it's No, that's important. Because something, so you and I were talking before we started about uh, having a podcast and, and just one of the things I love about it is I feel like I get to have conversations with some of the, the leading minds in our industry, people like yourself and so many of our mutual friends. And I've always had them because of some rooms I've been, been lucky enough to get in, but sharing them with everybody else. And so one of the things that continues to come up is like, all chips on the table. I'm all in, right? There's always some, for some people, it's like more than one of those moments. Yeah, for some people, it's more than one of those moments. <laughs> right. Of course you have, man, you run a tech company and you ran a huge real estate company before that. So you, I bet I'm willing to bet you've had your, all your chips on the table more than once. But so you said, okay, so you wired the stranger 10 grand. And at that time that is all chips on the table. So, I mean, you saw yeah, so, something in real estate, but you yeah, also saw something in yourself. Like I can use this. At 19, I knew I wanted to be in real estate um, after reading more than one book. So that, you know, Rich had poor dad put me on that path of leverage of people, time and money. And so this guy said he could teach me everything I wanted and could sh uh, shorten what should be a three to five to seven year learning period of 12 months. And I signed my first mentorship agreement. And really what it was, was a high accountability and scripts and dialogue. So he really, we delved into the psychology of sales and how people make emotional decisions and justify them logically and how to move to a yes. And, you know, you're, you're really finding out the why because real estate's a very emotional transaction. So if you can't actually get to a meaningful why, you're wasting your time. And so it was a 12-month contract and he had a wax on wax off clause in it, which said, you have to do anything I tell you that's legal and ethical. And so month six of it, he said, you're getting your real estate license because you need access to the MLS. So I get my license. I call back the guy who turned me down. He had happened to buy the KW franchise in Virginia. It was like the second or third one. And I joined Keller in 2002. So um, back to the story where I got an argument with my landlord. He said the volume was too loud for a Tuesday and I needed to find a new place to live. And I was in the office looking in the MLS for rentals. And then it turns out that um, the, the broker walked past me and said, you should buy a place. I said, I don't care. I'm a child, I can't buy real estate. He said, you don't know that. I spoke to the loan officer that was in house. Turns out I qualified for an FHA loan as long as I had my parents co-sign. I had perfect credit because I bought paid off a car and, um, bought my first place for 180,000 with a 3% down payment that I borrowed from my parents for eight hours. My commission became my down payment. And I rented out the rooms for 500 bucks each. And I lived rent-free, essentially. And then I turned around with that one transaction under my belt, called every fraternity brother and every sorority girl to take my call with one script, which was, let me talk to your parents about your housing needs for next year. 
once I got them on the phone, I said, for what your kids, uh, room and board is going to cost next year, I can show you how to buy them a house and you won't have a, a housing bill for the next four years. And that summer I sold 11 homes and decided what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Dude, that's huge. So, um, I don't know if you know Travis Tom or not, but he was a recent guest. I think so. Really great guy. He runs a uh, marketing agency, amongst other things, in, in the real estate space, uh, specific to Facebook. But he launched his career in a very similar fashion. I'm going to have to connect you guys one of these days, uh, where really when his career took off, it was actually doing the same thing for students in Albuquerque. Like going, hey, instead of going into debt and just renting, let's turn this, let's use a think it was called a kitty condo loan is what he called it yep and uh and i actually referred to it as that do you really okay so yeah funny story so travis is a really smart guy i have to connect you guys and, and that's besides the point but okay so that's interesting and to me um there's a lot of lessons already there but okay so you get into real estate you realize hey there's a there's a there's a big market here for what i just did uh and i can now help other people do the same thing so what's your so that doesn't sound like the typical real estate agent like start no, no, and it's, it's, I use it a lot as an example when I'm giving keynotes because I feel that now I've sold real estate for close to 20 years and everyone has an excuse for why this market's difficult, right? Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's too many houses, not enough houses. Interest rates are too low. They're creeping back up. It's, you know, I always tell people real estate is one of the most human condition binary situations. We fall in love. We make little people. We need more space. We need less space. A couple promotions along the way in death and divorce. And that's pretty much why people move homes. And that's not me. That's NAR statistics, right? So the reality is you don't move because you want to. It's like something happens and I have to move and you can either buy or rent. And that's, you know, indicative of your situation at the time. And so as a realtor, what always changed for me was who I represented. So sometimes it was developers, investors, and other times it was financial institutions. Right. And the only thing that changed was who I was taking care of at that time. Uh, rarely did I actually focus on individuals. I, I uh, was obsessed with the term I feel like I coined, but I called it multi-transactional customers. So early on in my career, I said, hey, I can take 10 listings or 20 listings or 50 listings at a time. It seems like a better use of my time. So how did you discover that? Like, where did you, what was, who's your first uh, multi-transactional customer? Well, it was, it was Gene Rivers in Tallahassee who was the first one to ever use the, like, he described it. I, he didn't have a name for it, but I, I saw him speak and I went home. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So early on, it was relationship-based. So my first one was a um, nonprofit that helped Hispanics with all aspects of life, from immigration to language. One of the things they, they taught was an education course on home buying. It was to be unbranded and purely educational. But I would teach every Sunday morning a one-hour class on, you know, back in 2002, 2003. So, like, don't get arms. <laughs> get mortgage insurance. Don't uh, – home inspections. Don't waive your home inspections. And really just explain what the pros and cons of each thing were. And I started getting constant referrals, right? And that ch turned into – I started helping the International Bank in the uh, – International Development Bank and the World Bank as they had executives move to the US in DC that only spoke Spanish. So I started servicing groups who were kind of ignored. And for example, uh, they had these folks who didn't speak English, but they were high level executives, but they needed a rental and no one wanted to help them because A, it was hard to communicate with them. And secondly, they were renting, but people underappreciated the fact that in a year or two, once their kids were going to the school and they had roots, I'd sold them seven, $800,000 homes. So 
I've always kind of gone really deep into something and played the long ball. And so for me, you know, in my peak years where I was selling five, 600 transactions, I probably only had 20 to 40 customers, right? Who would give me 30 homes, 50 homes, a hundred homes per year. That's, that's huge. So I want to, I want to say something like, um, definitely not bragging. So like we sold for the first time last year, 550 homes. Um, but you did it a while ago. Tell me when was the first year you hit that kind of numbers? Um, it was probably Oh nine. Oh nine. Okay. So yeah, I would say, I would say I broke up. Actually, I keep a spreadsheet if you want me to pull it up while we're talking. Yeah. But. <laughs> I, would, I would love to, I would love to see that. I love the fact that you got that on a spreadsheet, by the way. Um, <laughs> I said like 550, I know that it's exactly 552 for 152 million, 350,000. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, Mine was 603 for 118 million in 2010. But I, I think the first year I broke a hundred uh, was probably a 2009. I did like 328 or something like that. So that's huge. So I'm not going, hey, yeah, my numbers are good as yours. Actually, that was harder then. And that was less heard of then. It happens a lot more now with these big kind of like mega teams and the expansion teams like we do. And so, um, and I'm, I'm not trying to diminish what I've done, but I want to point out here, you were running a massive business back in, back then, 09 and 10, when really 100 houses a year, I can remember 2009 was the first time we had 100 deals, and that put us in the top 1% alone. You were already doing five, 600 deals a year. That, those were big, big numbers then. And, it, and so I want to make sure like, we drive home how big that is as to what, what you were doing, because what I've noticed about you so far, Leo, uh, is that everything you've done, it seems like if it's worth doing, it's worth like really doing in your mind, right? Like going, like going. Big. Yeah, no, no, that, that's a good point. So I actually point that out from almost the opposite. Like in 2010, I was the number one KW in the world, but I, I say I only did 603 transactions because this year that would barely get me in the top 50 or something like that. Right? It's crazy, right? But the funny thing is I was actually doing expansion before there was a name for it. I was in eight markets. So um, there was just a whole bunch of stuff I've always kind of fumbled, stumbled upon and figured out early on, but then somebody else comes up with a much cooler name for it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's different when you can put a, put a nice little package on it and like call it something else. And you're like, man, I, sh- I was doing that. I should have packaged that up. Right. Yeah. Um, stuff we learned looking back, but at any rate, I, I digress. So you're building a really massive business. Uh, I re- I'll never, never forget. Like I remember when you became the number one team, in the company, we, we didn't really know each other then or, or really know at all. But what, what I learned is your name kept coming up in conversations I was in. And I'll never forget a couple of years ago, a good friend and, and, and mentor to me, Ben Kenny was like, you know, you need to know Leo. Like Leo's a really smart guy. We just spent some time together recently. I think you should get to know Leo. And then your name came up again within the last two years uh, from another really smart guy who, who's meant a lot to me over the years, Chris Heller was, said, you know what, you, you need to get to know Leo better. Leo's a really smart guy. You should check out what, what he's doing. And so your name has come up for me over the years just constantly. And so I'm glad we finally connected earlier this year, but it's because you're always doing something really big. So tell me about that progression because I want to go into what you're doing today with Remind. But so you're the number one team at KW, which is by all means already the juggernaut in the industry. So you're the juggernaut of the juggernaut. And business is going good. But then I, I look up a couple of years later and you're running a tech company. So what, what happened? Well, a lot happened in between there. You know, there, there are a couple of interesting things that I think people uh, appreciate listening to is a, um, 
I, I have been accused of predicting the future several times throughout my career, and that's by no means close to true. But one thing I'm obsessed with is kind of being hyper aware of my surroundings. So I, I read a ton about economic trends and how much debt's created and who buys it and what it's being priced at. Stuff that most people don't uh, obsess over at night, but you know, I, I like how much of CMBS is collateralized with Fannie and Freddie versus the private markets and all kinds of random information. So the year I was uh, number one at KW in 2010, I kept getting asked to speak about REO. And the funny thing is I completely had turned off my REO machine by then because I was really tracking uh, delinquent loans in most financial institutions because I, I knew the party was over two years before it ended in the sense of people were starting to build an REO system. And at that point I was like, it's on autopilot, whatever we can't keep, I'm okay with losing. And I started retooling my company to go after retail once again. So I, I, I almost feel like people are always uh, just jumping on the tail end of stuff yep. and not being aware. Um, and so that's, that's always kind of been my obsession. So in 2012, I actually started a private debt fund uh, doing fix and flip financing. So hard money. Um, because one of the things I, I paid close attention to was everything that came out of the CFPB and Dodd-Frank and all the guidelines. So it was pretty much impossible to borrow money to buy residential real estate. It was a bad word back then. So it started as $3 million to $10 million. This year, we should lend somewhere between $260 million to $280 million, which probably makes me one of the top 10 uh, hard money lenders in the entire country and probably number one on the East coast. I still own that business. Um, and again, it's just being aware of, do I see an opportunity and I'm obsessed with unfair advantages at scale, right? If, if you can be first to market and, and deliver a great product or great experience, you know, an REO, I didn't have to be the best REO agent. I just had to be the one who had all the business in my market, yeah. uh, which turned out to be by giving the best customer service experience. Um, and then as a private lender, it was, Hey, you know, the experience is quite crappy. And actually that's been a trend, right? Most REO agents um, who were early on just had the business from the previous market cycle. And we came in and added a lot of process and technology and delivering information in real time, uploading photos and just giving a really white club service experience to the banks I serviced. Then we did it again in private lending and where hard money is typically an obnoxious transaction with a very arbitrary underwriting criteria. Do they like you or are they in a good mood? where we actually built an entire loan origination platform ground up uh, and went and raised institutional capital from Wall Street and created a legitimate credit box and um, raised real money. And so we, we were substantially undercutting the market where most hard money lenders are charging 12, 13, 14% with four or five points. We're putting money out in the street at 9.9% of two points. And so wow. we're slightly more expensive than a bank and 10 times easier to work with. That's huge. So, okay. So what, so what year did you start that fund? 2012. 2012. Okay. So that's been running for the last six years. You're still on that company. Um, what? And so that's where, that's where Remind was born. So that's we were, Remind. okay. Yeah. So both as a realtor and a, and a private lender, I wanted more data. I just wanted data as much data as I could. I could, could I see mortgage balances? Could I see who owned the property? I see the forwarding address. Could I see where everything was? And what, what happened was it turned out to be a disaster. You know, it was super difficult to aggregate 
Um, I don't think people appreciate how fragmented data is across the country. So we have over 3,200 different county courthouse and municipalities, boroughs, cities, fiefdoms that record information. And some record uh, tax information, some record deeds of trust. And so um, I service the DC market, which is three states in a 20 mile radius at about eight major counties. So like Maricopa County, where you do a lot of your business, is big and beautiful and you can kind of drive for two hours in every direction and it's one place, right? If I drive two hours in any direction, I'm literally like, I'm crossing state lines. Yeah. And so, you know, I lived in an exaggerated pain point. And so once I started going after data, I found it, cobbled it together, put it on a map and I showed it to a couple of people. Chris Heller being one of the very first people I showed it to him. And he's like, yeah, you're onto something really cool here. And so, again, my my obsession has been an unfair advantage in business. If if I have to compete head to head, it's not that interesting. It's actually very painful and you're competing on price and it's brutal. And like, you know, I always said in REO, good luck. I can tell you who my customers are. You won't take them from me because A, I build a deep relationship and deliver a high value, uh, value proposition. But so, you know, if I commercialize a real estate product, I didn't want to be one more guy screaming into the wind. So we said, if we deploy this, what is the one place every realtor in the country has to go to independent of business model brain or anything else? And, and you know, there, there is another part of it that really has to do with my philosophy on, on, on the industry. I truly think agents bring an incredible value proposition to the, to the transaction. I think the $5 billion of uh, venture capital that went into our industry last year are, is not friendly and they're literally trying to remove us. And so I went and, and I was a complete contrarian and said, yeah, I'm going to deliver this through the MLS only. And I want to keep the agent in the center of the transaction. And, um, you know, so far it's proven to be a smart business plan. Uh, a, because the, I think the industry and the MLSs and the agents were really looking for a solution that was designed by someone who's actually done this before. Um, and it, it, it makes sense. And, you know, we're, we're humbled and grateful to, to, be in the space now. So we're now live in about 35 markets servicing close to 800,000 realtors. We're, um, as of Friday, we'll be live in every U.S. time zone. So we, East, Central, Mountain, California, Alaska, and now Hawaii. Hey, it's your host, Kevin here. Listen, I'm taking this quick break to invite you personally to our conference, Next Level Agents Live, next April 25th and 26th in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's April 25th and 26th, 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Please join us for the industry's top speakers. I promise this will be the number one educational real estate event of the year. You do not want to miss it. You can get all of the details and buy your tickets today at nlalive.com. That's nlalive.com. Buy your tickets today. So data, that's a word that gets used so much. And yeah. I mean, I know it overplayed. is. Overplayed. Yeah, right. But, uh, but for a reason, words get overplayed because they become relevant for, for one reason or another. So put back on the hat of Leo, the number one, the realtor, and then Leo, the, the hard money lender, if you will, and go, so I need this data. How, how can it help me, right? So number one, like, what am I going to do with this data? I'm a realtor. Most of the people listening are realtors. I'm sure there's a few lenders, but most people are realtors. How can I use this? And then tell me, like, like I want to kind of progress through that conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, the thing is I did build someone for everyone, something that everyone can use. That's, that's 
always our obsession. So I specifically didn't build a product that only the 1% of the agents could have used because then it would have been 2000 bucks a month and it would have been like very other expensive, exclusive, you know, not taking anything away from the products, but I really wanted something that everybody had it bad for. So the, the wonderful thing is MLSs buy a base subscription for everyone in a market. And so that, that one is really designed to be your fact finding everyday tool. So depending on the market, you know, we compete with Realist, CRS, or IMAP, any one of those property-centric uh, public record databases. But in addition to that, it's, it's just everyday use. So if you're going on a listing appointment, you should check the vesting. We give you uh, an estimate of what we think the mortgage balance is, is in the flood zone, what schools the house should belong to, all kinds of facts, previous tax bills, liens, all kinds of stuff. So it is your kind of snapshot uh, report as to what, what the status of the house is, but you can create a CMA from the tool within about three clicks. You can print a, a report of everything around it. You can get demographic information as to the neighborhood. So whether you're going on a listing appointment, you're about to write an offer, you're getting a sense for the neighborhood. And then obviously our premium filters really take uh, prospecting to the next level. So one thing I always say to people is don't ask me what you should do with the platform. It's more like, let me ask you how you derive your business. And we want to make your life easier. So if you're purely prospecting, um, you typically have a strategy, whether it's geographic based. So if you're farming, you know, add some filters. So why don't you focus on folks who've been in the, on title at least five years and have not refinanced in the last three years, right? So you can filter information where you know that these data points are important because you've been working that neighborhood. So the average family moves every seven years, according to every stat we've ever heard in real estate. The reality, it's not seven years. It's probably three to four years in a move-up community, right? Or it's probably 15 years in a very established neighborhood where you can barely afford when you get in and you don't move to your kids go to college, right? So he was the practitioner, the only one that knows that on, on, on the you know, hyper-local level. It's, it just allows you to look up stuff the way you need to. So the fun part is we have seasoned agents who, you know, do exactly that farming. I've had agents who uh, work with hedge funds to buy single family homes and they literally find absentee uh, in-state absentee out-of-state specifically to the agents who've only been licensed six months. They're working with just a couple of buyers and they keep getting outbid and they will draw a polygon around the neighborhood where the buyer wants to be in. And they add a couple filters. So you can start with a neighborhood of 600 homes, say, show me everyone's been on title more than 10 years, 600 drops to 126. Then you say, show me everyone who's got at least $100,000 in equity and 126 drops down to 38. And then, you know, add owner-occupant to make sure you're knocking on that door. And you end up knocking on a dozen doors versus trying to knock on 600, which is part of the problem, right? When the problem looks so big, you don't know where to start. Knocking on 12 doors doesn't sound nearly that scary. And what we're hearing from agents, it's, you know, I knocked on those doors and I found my buyer house, but I also got two listings because the person who was contemplating selling said, you're the type of agent I want because you're actually being super proactive. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. So now that example that you just gave, that's what I think of when I hear the word data, like is how to, how to use data. Right. Um, and it, it's so funny. It doesn't matter if we're talking about marketing and social media, if we're talking about prospecting could be for listings, could be to help a buyer, whatever. We're talking about using some of the technology and the resources that we have to sort of like niche down, if you will, and to be more effective with whatever communication it is that we have, whatever effort it is that we're putting into something. And so what I think I'm hearing from you is Remind is just that. It's a tool to help you be more effective 
and to make sure you're putting your efforts into to the thing that can possibly give you the biggest return. So you said two things there. One is, one of the things I always clarify is that Remind is a platform, not a product. So meaning an iPhone to me is more of a platform than a product and the way I use the iPhone is completely different than my 74 year old father, right? And, but, but secondly, I want to go back one second. You said niche down and you know, you asked me what my business model has always been and it's always been hyper niched, right? So when I was selling houses, I was either an REO guy or I was a new construction guy or I was an investor. And I really focused on delivering a high value. And the more complicated, the higher the barrier of entry, the more I like something. Yeah. And so like hard money lending, I mean, when you look at the, you know, a total money that gets lent in this country, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of residential lending. But, you know, I had an unfair share of it. So the more complicated something is and the higher barrier of entry, the happier I am. That's awesome. Well, what I love, though, is, is your platform uh, has brought tools to the everyday realtor to be able to essentially do the same thing as long as they can think about it, right? If they can start to go, well, hey, how do I want to get my business, right? Or maybe someone who's more experienced, how am I getting my business, like you said? And now I can go use your platform to help me get smarter about that and to be able to improve my business and uh, be more efficient with my time, et cetera, through, through your platform. So I think that's huge. What is it? I mean, how do you like, so you, it sounds to me like you've always thought big, but I, like, I'm just trying to wrap my head around. How do you go from, man, I'm a realtor, like mentally what I'm, is what I'm saying here. How do you go from, I'm a realtor and granted you, you weren't your typical realtor, right? You sold no, 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 we, we, we skipped over a very important part of the story, which is I got the shit kicked out of me in the downturn, right? So, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that's, 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 that's part of the journey. So it's funny when I, uh, I meet young folks who are, you know, doing something and they feel very excited. I'm like, wait, you, you haven't eaten humble pie yet. And that's, that's that, is, that is a requirement. You know, uh, I heard somebody say in order to uh, make a large fortune, you must first lose a small one. And it's, it's, it's so critical because you have no respect for what's possible. And, you know, at 23, you know, I gave you that, that story of, high, of uh, my first year selling homes. My senior year of college, I was 21. I did $306,000 in GCI while I was a full-time student. And, you know, in retrospect, it's probably the wealthiest I've ever been from a DTI standpoint. But, you know, I did everything a dumbass 23-year-old would do. And I had an X5 and I had multiple properties and I had, a, you know, a lot of vacations. But in, in, in the summer of 07, um, my accountant said I was worth about $4 million on paper. And by the fall of 07, I was worth negative $1 million, you know, because the world ended in the house of cards that was over leverage uh, was exposed, right? It's all my tenants stopped paying me because they all lost their jobs. You know, it was, a, it was a vicious cycle that, you know, I think the one thing I can't explain enough to people is how quickly stuff can change. You know, and uh, actually, uh, you mentioned Joshua Smith, who's a good mutual friend of both of ours. I was speaking at his event recently and I said, raise your hand if you've been selling real estate you know, honor before or um, honor after 2010, and at least half the hands went up. And I mean, that effectively, that's an eight year career. That's a great, that's a very healthy, long career. But I said, guys, if you guys aren't mastering price reductions right now, that should be your one thing, right? You have, you have for eight years in a row, everything sells. You haven't seen like losing 10% of the value over a six month period, and it's coming. 
right? Yeah. It you know, it absolutely is. I don't know how pronounced it'll be, but um, yeah, no, I, I literally lost everything. It was about 90 days from bankruptcy. I gave everything back because uh, I was over leveraged and I didn't have a real business model. I just, I thought I was God's gift to real estate, but I was just a creature of the world's greatest bubble in the world. And I was an arrogant little kid. And so after lots of crying and lots of buggers, you know, I decided I, I did want to stay in the business and I actually uh, sorted the country and saw the top 10 KW agents that year and called them all. And that was probably one of the most valuable lessons because first of all, they, most of them were willing to talk to me and half of them said, come visit me for a day. And I spent the day with some of, you know, the biggest names of back then, uh, like Chad Goldwasher and, you know, CC Sells and a whole bunch of folks that have either retired out of the business or um, gone in a different direction. But the aha, which fundamentally changed the course of my life is, oh my God, these are normal people. You know, prior to that, those meetings, I was doing $20 million a year and had one assistant and had a great business. But the thought of 500 transactions was not real. Like it was just not part of my brain. Like I literally remember thinking that's not possible. I'd, I'd have to, 20 years would have to go by before I could get there. And I realized these people were normal people, you know, the same problems, you know, uh, you know, in some cases I felt I was probably a little bit more competent than, than I could, if they could do it, I could do it. And that was, I got home and I was like, Oh, wow they're not smarter than me. And so that, that was a huge learning lesson. And, you know, I, I went from seven transactions, I think in 2008 or one of those years to then 99 transactions, then all the way to 328 and then four something, then six something. So it was, it was in, and I said, I didn't get an MBA. I didn't take a blue pill, like nothing fundamentally changed inside my brain other than I was like, Oh, wait, I can do that. Right. And it's the, Roger Bannister story with running a four minute mile. It's like, especially when you see someone and you can talk to them and you realize that they're not any more confident than you are. It, it, it's very empowering. You. No, it really is. I'll never forget. And um, I had a very similar experience to that. We were selling about, we were stuck like 130, 140 houses a year. Uh, and then I went and saw how many houses Ben Kenny was selling in Bellingham, Washington of all places. And I went, okay, I got to stop like questioning everything that's messy around here and eventually just step up and, and get it done. And for us, like that was a, I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget that thought. And it was the thing that catapulted our sales business to, to be able to go there. So I, I, I think that's, well, and that's one habit I never gave up. So even, you know, I, I beat Ben for many years in a row and I've been towards the end of my career. He was crushing me, but it, you know, I said, Hey, I'm going to be in your area let's hang out. And he's actually said, come stay at my house. I stayed like three days with him, went to the office. We did a whole bunch of stuff. And that's a behavior I never stopped. And I'm doing the same thing in tech now. So it's like, Hey, a perfect example is, do you know, Tyler Smith? Uh, no, I don't think I do. So he was a, he was a KW agent. He and I were in the same 30 under 30 class that Joshua Smith was also in. And, uh, he started Skyslope. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so he actually was in my ear for about four years telling me to start a tech company. And he, uh, you know, he loves taking credit. He's like, let me start a tech company because I told, told him to. But it was one of those things where I saw his business keep growing and growing. I mean, he a year ago sold to Fidelity for over $100 million. Uh, but it was one, he was a guy who's like, Leo, you can do this. 
I can do this. You can do this. He's like, I said, well, I don't know anything about tech. He's like, yeah, but you know a shitload about real estate. You're one of the most systematic guys I've ever met. Put some of the stuff that's in your head into technology and guarantee you people will buy it. And so I had a very limiting belief that I'm not qualified. I don't know anything about tech. I can't write a single line of code. And it was a guy who looked like me, talked like me, was literally very similar to me on paper. Who's was like, yeah, who cares? You can hire those folks. You know how to hire people really well. KW taught you how to do that pretty well. And what you really need to communicate is how the transaction happens, how the lead gen process happens, the workflow happens. That's what tech guys don't know. And so, you know, it's going back to being those relationships and being those communications where it's like, yeah, until I, until I had sold 600 homes, I hadn't done it. Until I lent any money, I hadn't done it. So it's been the same thing with tech until I decided to go build tech. I hadn't done it. That's awesome, man. So talk to me. What are some of the other lessons or maybe what are some of the similarities that you've seen between running a big real estate business to now running a really big tech business as well? Or, so it sounds you're visiting other tech entrepreneurs, you're spending time with them. I'm assuming you're spending a lot of time with those people at different places or their houses or in their offices for hours and days at a time. What are, what are some other similarities, whether you're practicing them or just things that you've noticed in this industry versus like say real estate? So a bunch of stuff. I, obviously the, the similarities are the fact that people are people are people. You know, I fundamentally believe the asset of every company is the people you, you can, you know, get to join you on your vision. And so, you know, disc profiling and AVAs and all that fun stuff. And, you know, after I left Keller, I, I got uh, Brett Hanyon to coach me at corporate consulting. And so that stuff translates. If you become, if, if I would say my one thing is building relationships and focusing on people, that translates, right? Instead of selling to developers, now I sell to MLS executives and broker owners. And, you know, it's a different transaction. It's much longer sales cycle. It's harder. But again, that doesn't scare me one bit. I actually prefer it that way. Because again, the harder a sale is, the more complicated it is, the, the less people who can compete. One, one of the saddest things to me in residential real estate is, you know, the guy who's been licensed for six minutes can ask for the same commission as someone who's been doing this for 20 years and has a staff of 20, right? It's like, it's bullshit. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd almost want to be able to charge based on experience and level of, 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 of capacity. So um, in tech, it's very different, right? Like if, if when you're going after a infrastructure deal where you're a system of record, you know, they, they, they want to make sure you exist and they want to know how you're back financially and your security protocols, you know, it, it that stuff has been an experience in leveling up and having to learn languages, uh, you know, business-wise, not, not not actually new languages, but just understanding how how a different world works. But at the end of the day, it's people or people or people. Yeah, man, that's huge. So, hey, I, I've got a question for you. And I, I don't want to go backwards too far in the story, but you said something early on that really caught my attention. And so uh, I, know, I know we don't have too much time left. I promise I wouldn't keep you too long, um, but I got to get this out. So, you talked about the stuff that you like to read and really start to master that most people just sort of don't pay attention to. Um, and you talked about like how you basically said, okay, my REO accounts or whatever, I'm gonna let them go away and I'm gonna go work on this next thing. What do you see coming? Like, I'm not gonna hold you to like, I know you don't have a crystal ball. Mine broke, uh, so I don't have a crystal ball. So I don't expect yours to actually be a crystal ball either. But if you had to say, hey, here's what I'm expecting over the next 12 to 24 months and 
residential real estate and just kind of the economy. Like I'm really curious as to what your take is based on where you're spending your time and what you learn. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the first thing I did when the market crashed in 2007, after I wiped all the buggers and stopped crying was go seek out people who'd lived before us. Right. It's like, Hey, what the hell just happened? They're like, Hey dummy, it happens every eight years. And about every 18 years, there's a super cycle. And again, we can go back to like 1700 and that's actually happened. So what, what happens? It's like, well, follow the money. So in 2007, I didn't know who Fannie and Freddie were, right? I'd heard the term from a lending limit. I knew 417 off the top of my head, but I actually didn't know what the hell it meant. Right. I, didn't under, I didn't understand collateralized debt obligations. I didn't understand how it all worked. And the more I learned, I was like, oh, okay, so this happens again. So fundamentally, from a crisis standpoint, we had too much capital in the system and too many transactions compared to household formation. So it boils down to simple, simple stuff, right? We have about five and a half million transactions that need to take place per year in this country based at the rate of household formation and life events. It's actually almost mathematical. In 2007, we sold like 6 million homes. It was that simple. A lot of them were second home speculation, new construction speculation. And in the big short, there's that scene where uh, the guy's a loan officer who had previously been a bartender and he was doing three loans for a stripper, right? It was like, that's the pinnacle of the exuberance of that last cycle. So there was no fundamentals there. You fogged a mirror, you got money, 103% closing. All of that is gone, right? That, the, the correction in the marketplace legislatively was real. You need to qualify to buy a loan in this country now. I mean, the, the loans that have originated in the last seven years are the best paper we've ever seen. Fully underwritten 30-year fixed loans. 30% of transactions last year were in cash, right? There's been a flight to, cap, to, to, to something tangible because a lot of people got their feelings hurt and there's been a lot of foreign investment. So from that standpoint, I think we're pretty solid. And I always tell people, I don't see a financial crisis like we saw in 2008. Now, what I always told people, I said, the top of the market, where it's going to be the equilibrium between supply and demand, right, based on affordability. We have a real lack of supply in this country that is a 10-year problem. The other metric that's important, based on housing stock and based on household formation, we almost need to deliver 1 million households, new construction properties per year. In 2008, that number dropped right after the peak to about 400,000 because no one could finance them and no one wanted to take the risk. And it creeped up to 450 and then 500 and then 600. Last year was the first year we actually were delivering properties at capacity for household formation. So we went eight years with not enough properties being delivered. So we're short like 6 million homes. Wow. And that's a real number. You can't change that. And a lot of the times, the legislative problems at the local level, meaning the county got its ass kicked. And so they're charging double fees for new construction tap fees and impact fees, which makes it unaffordable to build small homes, right? So you only see new construction in the expensive part of the market. And so there is a real, real lack of supply that will be here for 10 years. But the, the, the flip side of pricing cap is interest rates. So as interest rates tap out, supply will loosen up and then you'll find equilibrium. But I think we're going to be in for a, you know, a more balanced or even soft market where stuff has to be actually marketed. Stuff will sit on the market and, you know, 
sticking in the MLS and, and waiting for 18 offers won't be a thing anymore. I mean, in 2008, nine, you, you remember we had 18 months of inventory. Homes could sit on the market for north of a year. And you could, you almost, it was, you know, the expression was catching a falling knife because that's what it was like to price a property. Every time you went to review the comps 30 days later, it had ran away by you by 15% more, which is quite difficult. So I don't know if that was too much, but you know. No, my, that's, that's great. That's not too much. But let me ask you this. I want to bring it, want to bring it down to the level of somebody listening into this conversation. So I'm a real estate agent. Let's just pretend you're my coach. You're the guy that I just wired 10 grand to, or you're my broker owner and I'm a part of your brokerage, right? And so at either rate, your job is to help me be productive as a realtor in 2019. Um, what are you going to make sure I'm focusing on? Yeah, so one of the things I love is data. <laughs> so NAR puts out a report every year of what uh, people attributed value to in the transaction. Okay. And most buyers and sellers, 75% of them said they'd use a realtor again. So they were actually happy with the practitioner. But 50% of sellers put the entire value of the commission on negotiation skills. Right. Have you actually taken a class on negotiations? Like I, I went and found Karis Institute of Negotiations where literally I was sitting in a class with mostly Exxon Mobil executives. And I always found it fascinating because the actual guy said, raise your hand when you industry and when you introduce yourselves. And there was one of us, I, I was the resi guy and there was a commercial guy. And he actually said, those two guys are in the room are either the best negotiators in the room or the absolute worst negotiators in the room. Because, <laughs> because how many realtors have commission breath, right? It's like, Hey, I got an offer for you. It's like, well, we're an IDB at, well, you know, the seller's really motivated. It's like, who are you representing? What value are you delivering to that buyer or seller in your negotiations? Because can you materially say you saved them $17,000 because you were involved in the transaction? Or were you able to get them $25,000 more because you were in the transaction? Because frankly, at, at some of the elevated price points we have throughout the country, I think a lot of realtors are actually overpaid for the, the value they're delivering. And so, you know, I, I say to agents all the time, if all you're doing is emailing listings and unlocking doors, you're already out of the business. You just don't realize that, right? So, you know, are you bringing deep value because you're an expert, whether it's the transaction, the type of product, the location, the area, like if you need to be bringing legit value to the transaction. And I truly think over the next five years, the, the, the rise of the super team. Like you, like you said, we have teams doing 1,200 transactions per year and that they're not unique anymore. When I, when I did 600, I was like top of the world. That's, that's completely normal now, right? Yeah. And the, the rate at which technology is evolving is what's letting that happen, right? So you can do a lot more with less. It's cheaper. Technology is becoming cheaper. And really, as an industry ourselves, we didn't set a high barrier of entry. And I think the new one will be transactional experience, right? Now someone can hop on Zillow and see how many houses your team sold. That didn't exist five years ago, right? So when I was 23 and I was a number one agent in my office, and I actually was a pretty good agent, if the 56-year-old walked in with a suit, just looked the part, they'd take the listing away from me. Interesting. Towards the end of my career, I could literally walk in in jeans and a t-shirt, and my presentation could speak Google me. Right. And not to be a jerk, but it, it was third party verifiable information. Right. And, you know, this, this is another rant I go on when I give keynotes. It's like, hey, forget like millennials and boomers. And this is what they want. 
What do you want? How do you make every single decision in your life? And this is when I tell people, this is the remote control of our lives. However you make every decision in your life is how the consumers you're serving are making decisions because people are people are people, right? So if you're not seeing people or if people aren't seeing you the way you're consuming products, you're done. It, it's literally that, right? Can they rev- verify your reviews without you being present? Right. The, uh, what the stat that was drilled into both of our brains because we got started around the same time is sellers hire uh, the first realtor they interview 70% of the time. It's not the case with millennials. The average millennials interview two and a half realtors. So you have to be first, but you also have to be good. Right. So before it was like, hey, I got the paper. It's it's done deal. But I, I'm, I'm actually saying because, you know, NAR gather that statistic is I don't think it was asked as a second part of the question. It was like, were those two and a half interviews in person? Because I guarantee they weren't. Right. I think what's going on is you get a referral. But before you call them, you verify it. The best example is, you know, one of my best friends, I think, has pretty questionable movie taste. And every time he says you should go watch this movie, I actually have to get on Rotten Tomatoes to verify. It's, it's hit or miss with him. Right. So I think the most dangerous thing that can happen to you in society right now is they Google you. Nothing comes up. Right. You're invisible. So I invite people to just however you consume stuff, put yourself in the consumers you're serving, you know, shoes and make sure that they're not only being able to verify you that way, but delivering that experience is, is your entire mo- is your experience mobile first. Right expectations are everything to me in a, in a transaction. So, you know, are you asking, what's your favorite form of communication? Like realtors love to talk on the phone, but is it email? Is it text message? Is text message okay? Is it preferable, right? Are you responding with the same tenacity that they're expecting to? Because we're, we live in an Amazon universe now. If it's not by now and I can't make a decision right now, am I missing that opportunity? Yeah, man, that's huge. I think that's, that's really great advice that you just gave there. Um, all right, man, I got, I've got two more questions for you. Sure. First one is, all right, so I'm an agent, and I don't like, I, for whatever reason, I've not heard of uh, Remind yet, but I want to know more about it. What do I do? Do I need to go to my local MLS? Do I go to your website? Yeah. Like, what's yeah, if the you go to our website, Remind.com. Uh, so believe it or not, there's 650 MLSs in this country or something like that. Uh, 60 percent the top 60 are 80% of all the agent counts. So we're in most major markets. Okay. So if you go to our website, you can actually see our login, but a lot of what comes out of doing podcasts or doing uh, public speaking engagements is people say, Hey, are you in my market? So I, I would say to people, send me an email. My email is Leo at remind.com R E M I N E.com. I was surprised people when I respond pretty quickly because that's part of how I build every business. Uh, and, and I would say most markets I'm in have been grassroots where an agent heard me speak or was in a mastermind group with another agent who's using it in their daily workflow and they just want it in the market. So, um, you know, that's pretty much how we've gotten into everything. And, you know, I, just like I invite people to listen, um, to ask their customers how they want to be engaged with. I, I normally tell people, hey, probably the best way to engage with me is on Instagram. It's pretty much the only platform I use, but people message me on that. That's pretty easy way to communicate with me and I'm posting what I'm up to. So for example, I I was up at 4 a.m. today. I was in a 6 a.m. flight to New York. I had a meeting at eight. Uh, I was back at LaGuardia by noon and I was in my office this afternoon and taking this call from my office. But 
um, you know, I think we're in this amazing time of the world where you, you just document what you're doing and that actually is probably the most powerful thing we can do. No doubt about it. All right, man, last question for you. So this is something I like to ask everybody. Um, so what are your top three pieces of advice for just generally kicking more ass at life? So I don't, it could be business, it could be personal, financial, doesn't matter. Just somebody comes to you, maybe it's somebody you've got a mentorship uh, type of relationship with. And it's like, Leo, like, what are, what are your three best pieces of advice for just kicking more ass? So the first one, especially if you're younger, it's just, you know, time is the ultimate advantage on everything. Um, when, when you're 22, so this is for the young folks, you know, your energy and your time is the unfair advantage. Work 20 hours a week, seven days a week. You, you can't do it once you have a, a partner and kids because it's not fair to them. So do not piss your time away. Uh, and in the same vein, when they're like, well, I want to be like, I'm like, well, go find the me that you want to be like. And there's one in every market. I'm not special. That's probably another piece of advice. You're not, you're not special. But go work for them for free. You know, because first of all, any young uh, man or woman who's coming and offering me to work for free, first of all, when I hired him, I paid him. Because that's what you do when you see talent. Not much, but I paid him. So don't worry about that offer. And two, you know, it shortens your learning curve in either direction. What I mean by that is if um, turns out that's not what you wanted to be, you save yourself 10 years and a lot of heartache. Yep. And B, if it is who you want to be, osmosis is better than any other form of, of learning, right? You, 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 you get to model behavior mannerisms that would take you years to learn on your own. Um, another one is, you know, it was, it was only a gift of experience for me and I try to communicate to everybody. I mean, I, I was, you know, at the top of my game, quote unquote, at 23, making great money. And I thought I was invincible and I thought it was special. And then I got the shit kicked out of me. And the biggest lesson learned was that it's all temporary. It is, it is super temporary. And at the end of the day, all that matters to me, in my opinion, based on my experience so far on this planet Earth, is, is just relationships, right? So it's, and, and the important ones, it's my family, it's, it's my kids now. And it's like, I'm always aware and I listen a lot. It's like, are you actually living your truth? So like, you know, you and I have only gotten to know each other uh, personally more recently but if you know me it's like if you're in town i'm not gonna have dinner with you period i don't care who you are because dinner's for my kids that's holy to me you know i will meet you at six in the morning at some ungodly hour because i can i can go as early as i want right and so you know are you actually living your truth or you're full of shit and just another mouthpiece because to me it's like keep your put your money where your mouth is are, are you actually living the shit that's coming out of your mouth on a daily basis and um that was personal and business and then i'll give you a health when it's um first of all whether it's business or health or any, we all know what to do right it's like don't drink calories like water black tea or uh or, i'm sorry black coffee or tea cut out all the liquid calories and then it, like weight starts melting off. And then secondly, it's like, Hey, like diets don't work. We know bacon's bad and red meat's bad. So eat less of that. Eat chicken and fish and mostly fruits and vegetables and don't eat processed stuff. Like, it's that simple. Right. And, and from a health standpoint, for me, it was, you need enough leverage most of the time to actually take action. And 
uh, I got a physical about two years ago and my doctor was like, hey, have you ever heard of like a 38 year old who can run a marathon and drops dead of a heart attack? I was like, yeah, he's like, that's you. You're like, you have a 25% chance of a heart attack because your cholesterol is out of control. And that's because I, I built in ribeyes and bourbon a lot of the times when I was selling and negotiating. And it's, it's one of those things that's like, stop right now. Don't ever do it again. It's like, it's not a for a for short period of time thing. It's like, hey, do you, do you want to walk your little girl down the aisle? And that's how binary needs to be. So, you know, how, how committed are you to that action? And do you understand the consequences of not taking? If you can actually, you know, some people say it's like extreme and like fear mongering to a point, but it's like, what's at risk? You know, if you don't take this action, what does not happen? And if you can actually be that binary about stuff, choices become super simple. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, then you, because then you've got like a, this either fits into what I said I wanted or it doesn't, right? So I didn't even have to make the decision. My pre-decision already made my decision for me, right? So that's uh, that's huge, man. Uh, that's awesome. So, all right, man, last parting shots. Anything else, uh, Diana share or anything else that people want to know? You mentioned Instagram. What's your username on Instagram? And I'll, I'll make sure it gets posted in the show notes. Yeah, it's at Leo Prey. That's my name. I had to buy it from some kid in Brazil, but yeah. <laughs> Whether it's Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn, I, I actually own my, all my names everywhere. Oh, ho- so hopefully those negotiation skills came into use for you when, when you got yeah. that. You have to yeah, work. it was a whopping 750 bucks, which I thought was a pretty fair deal. <laughs> That's not bad. I had to buy a domain name once for that that had my name in it. So uh, now I don't feel so bad about that. So anyways. I, I paid 6000 for Remind.com. Did you really? Yeah, it was, it, there was a domain broker in Japan. He had had it for 11 years and he, it's an entire business model. It was fascinating to me. He's like, yeah, no, I'd sit on 20,000 of these and the number of characters, I know what the market price is for it. That's crazy. That's, that's pretty awesome, man. Well, hey, Leo, thanks so much, man. Not just for spending some time with us today, but just for all your contributions to our industry and, and giving back. I know I appreciate it. And uh, I just want to say thank you on behalf of uh, all of our listeners and, and viewers, et cetera. And uh, thanks a ton for doing what you're doing. And we appreciate it, man. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, Leo, we'll talk to you soon, man. Take it easy. That's it for today's show. Do me a favor if you enjoy this, go over to iTunes or wherever you're listening at, leave us a review, share this episode with your friends, and for more great content, check us out in our Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash next level agents. That's facebook.com forward slash groups, next level agents. See you soon.